delighted to have Jill Tata here this evening. Um, if, if we discover life in space, uh, particularly for sophisticated life, I think it will be the most transformative event, certainly of our lifetimes uh, and of the 21st century. Uh, it's difficult to imagine how it will change the way that we think about ourselves. One can imagine what it will do to religion uh, and to many other things. And the search for intelligence and life uh, beyond our planet is obviously one that goes back uh, for time immemorial. Uh, we've always wanted to understand what's out there. But it's become uh, more and more sophisticated, and I am optimistic that it's become more and more probable uh, that we'll have some answers uh, to these questions that have confounded humanity for a very long time during our lifetimes. So it's an amazingly exciting time uh, to be alive uh, and to be thinking about these issues. Uh, and as director of the Oxford Martin School, I'm uh, proud to say that we now do have a cosmology group, finally, uh, in the school. And it's good to see Pedro Ferreira, uh, co-director of that here. Uh, and it's a particular pleasure to be able to welcome uh, Jill this evening. Uh, Jill runs SETI. Uh, she'll tell us uh, all about it. Uh, some of you might not recognize her as the Jodie Foster lookalike uh, from the film Contact, um, but that's, what, uh, that's who has portrayed her. She's been nominated one of the 100 most influential people uh, in the world by Time magazine, or is it CNN that, uh, that nominated you that, and has received numerous awards um, to Lifetime Achievement Award for Women in Aerospace, two public service medals from NASA, and a, the TED Prize in 2009. Um, so it's an absolutely formidable set of achievements. Uh, she's a scientist, a PhD in astronomy from UC Berkeley, and she's someone who, I think more than anyone else uh, in the world, is able to provide insight into what is out there, what could be out there, uh, and how are we going to find out? So I'm really eager to hear from you and uh, give you the floor. Jill will talk for about 40 minutes and then we'll have a little bit of time for Q&A. The whole session will last an hour. Thank you. Oops. Um, thank you for that, that introduction. And, uh, in case anyone is in the room not understanding what SETI is, it's an acronym that stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And I'm going to tell you about how we're changing the way we do our business, how we're trying to involve the world, and perhaps in the process change the world a bit. So who am I? All right, my team uses radio telescopes to, find extra, to try and find extraterrestrial technology, and that might sound, as Ian mentioned, like a movie theme. So I'm the one that isn't wearing the headphones. Right? <laughs> um, I have degrees in engineering physics and astrophysics, and I've had two jobs in my life. I was a NASA SETI project scientist uh, for a number of years until 1993, when Congress terminated the funding for um, NASA SETI project. And then I became employee number one at the nonprofit SETI Institute in Mountain View, California. Uh, there. I direct the Center for SETI Research. Uh, I was the leader of a decade-long project that we called Phoenix 
that was rising from the ashes of congressional termination to take the search into the, um, the public domain. I serve now as the leader of what we call SETI on the ATA, Sonata. I'll tell you about the Allen Telescope Array, the ATA, a bit more. Um, I have been trying to change the way we do things as a result of a, 19, uh, a prize in 2009 from TED, Technology, Entertainment, and Design. And basically, I'm the chief cheerleader for our SETIQuest uh, project. Okay. Um, so, Sonata, SETI on the ATA, and I are we're transitioning. So, in the words of the open source community, we're going from the cathedral, doing it all by ourselves, alone, using the world's large radio telescopes, to the bazaar. Right, opening up to the vibrancy and the innovation of the open source community and the world out there. Basically realizing that not all the smart people in the world who might be interested in SETI work at the SETI Institute. And for the first time, we're able, because of the technologies we've transitioned to, um, and because we have our own telescope, we're enabled, finally, to invite the world to join us. And this is just the latest segment of what has been a long, long journey by humans, L wondering who we are, where we came from, where we're going, what is, what should be, and of course, who else might be out there. SETI, to me, is taking the millennia that we spent asking wise people, the priests, the shamans, the philosophers, what should we believe? Is anybody out there? And SETI is the transitioning of that to a scientific exploration. So we're getting rid of the word believe and we're replacing it with explore. Let's find out what is, not what someone tells us should be or might be. And this question about whether we're alone or not in the universe um, is a perfectly reasonable question to pose of the cosmos. After all, we're the product of 13.7 billion years of evolution. We are, in fact, what happens when primordial hydrogen and helium hang around and evolve long enough to be able to ask, where did we come from? And that is one of our questions. So I am full of cosmic optimism. And I'm optimistic because of the perspective that SETI can bring to my team, to the world, to all of us. All right? So we're here tonight, Christchurch, Oxford, England. But as the news reports from the horrendous tragedies in Japan and the news of the ongoing revolutions in Africa and other items remind us that we are also here. And in fact, as the Cassini spacecraft turned around and looked back through the rings of Saturn, it showed us here. And in 1990, when the Voyager spacecraft passed Neptune on its way out of the solar system, 
and turned back and looked around. It showed us here. And we're here. And ultimately, we're here. So it's really all about perspective, right? And perspective can change. Perspective can be modified. Perspective can be influenced. And that's what we're trying to do with SETI. So we live on a fragile island of life in a universe that's full of possibilities. And after 25 years of preparation, in March of 2009, we launched this little spacecraft called Kepler, which is beginning to show us some of the most amazing possibilities that are, in fact, out there. So Kepler is looking for Earth-sized planets orbiting their stellar host at an appropriate distance so that we might find liquid water on the surface of the planet and might therefore infer that that planet could be habitable. So how do we find planets? Well, as I'm hopeful any Oxford student can tell you, when a planet orbits its star, in fact, both the planet and the star orbit around their common center of mass. But the star is so much more <coughs> massive than the planet that although the planet moves great distances, it can only tug on the star a little bit, causing the star to wobble. And two methods of trying to measure that stellar wobble on the sky, astrometry to see if the star moves back and forth across the sky, and radial velocity measurements to see if the planet, if the star is moving just a little bit towards us and away from us because a planet is tugging. Um, those had, in fact, shown us about 500 exoplanets before we launched Kepler. But Kepler looks for something else. Um, for some planets and some stars, the alignment of the planet's orbit might be such that it passes in front of the star from our vantage point. And when it does so, it would block a little bit of light from the star and cause the total brightness of the star to fade. And then the next time it comes around, it will do the same thing. It will cause that light to dim. And in fact, this transit here and the animation um, looks like no problem. That's an easy thing to find. But this is a huge exaggeration. In fact, finding transiting planets is a very, very difficult job. When a planet like Jupiter passes in front of its star, it blocks approximately 1% of the star's light. One part in 100. When a planet like the Earth goes in front of its star, the Earth blocks only one part in a hundred thousand of the star's light. Nevertheless, with precise enough movie cameras, essentially, you can detect that small diminution. Um, part of the reason that it took Kepler 25 years to get developed and launched 
was because people didn't believe you could do this. You can, it's pretty hard, but in fact, it's doable. Now, not all planets around all stars are going to line up in such a way that a transit occurs. So in order to look for planets around stars using this transit method, you're going to have to look at a whole, whole lot of stars. And so Kepler is looking near the Milky Way galaxy. This is an image, this is an actual image of the Milky Way on a summer night stretching apparently between Mount Shasta on the right and Mount Lassen on the left. These are the two southernmost volcanoes in the cascade chain that runs through Washington and Northern California. And our observatory that we use to search for extraterrestrial intelligence is sitting right there on the left at the base of um, Mount Lassen. But this is where stars live. And so this is where Kepler needs to look on the sky. So in about 100 square degrees on the sky, about the size of your fist held out at arm's length, in that area of the sky, between the constellations of Cygnus and Lyra, a little bit above the plane of the Milky Way, so that there aren't too many stars, Kepler stares continuously. And it has as its detectors, each of these little rectangles, is an array of CCDs. CCDs, charge-coupled devices, are what make your cell phone camera work what make your digital camera work. But as opposed to having three megapixels or 10 megapixels, Kepler has 95,617,600 pixels. And it looks in this area of the sky and those pixels work. We know that because when we took the lens cover off the spacecraft after launch, we saw this image, which, if you're an astronomer, this is an image to love. Might be hard to see in there. I don't know what it looks like from your point of view. It's pretty dark. But there are four and a half million stars in that field of view. Let's do a, a black-white reversal. Maybe it shows up a little better here. Actually, let's zoom into those center two pixels and blow those up. All right, there are a lot of stars and they're crowded together. Kepler is staring continuously at 165,000 of those four and a half million stars. And we know that those 95 <coughs> megapixels work. Uh, as of February 1st of this year, on the basis of just half a year's observing, Kepler announced that 1,235 of those stars are blinking at us, are winking. These dots represent the locations of exoplanet candidates, and they're color-coded to show you the mass of the planet. There are um, giant planets, there are Neptune-sized planets, there are planets of whose size we have no example in our own solar system. There are super-Earths, 
from um, one and a half to eight times the mass of the Earth, 1.25 to, uh, excuse me, should read my slides, two times Earth size. Um, and then there are Earth-sized planets. And 54 of these 1,235 planets exist at a distance from their star where there might be liquid water. They might be in the habitable zone. If this kind of diagram doesn't impress you, how about this one? This is an image of those, I'm sorry, an artist's rendering of those 1,235 exoplanet candidates where the stars are drawn relative in size and the little black spots represent the size of the shadows cast by the exoplanets. That's us. That's Earth going and Jupiter going around the sun, blowing that up. You can see that indeed a planet as small as the Earth casts a very, very small shadow on a star like the sun. So it's a hard job. Good planets are pretty hard to find, but Kepler is getting there. Um, the one thing that is so fabulous about having these excellent solar planets to study is it really does prevent the sort of hubris that scientists had uh, accumulated over the, um, the centuries. We took a look at our solar system and we looked at the clockwork nature of the solar system and the simple rules that define how bodies move around the sun and around one another, Kepler's laws. And perhaps it was the simple nature of those laws that lulled us into thinking or convinced us to think that whenever we found planets orbiting another star, it would be just like ours. So we have the big gas giants in our solar system orbiting large distances from the sun. And the small, rocky, Earth-like planets orbiting in close to the star. And they're all in a nice, flat plane. And they all go around in circles. And this is what we expected. However, the first exoplanet we found was far more massive than Jupiter, and it went around its star in only a few days. So we now know an enormous amount more about how extrasolar planetary systems form and work because we have many examples. And here is the Kepler spacecraft orrery showing all of the multiple planet systems that have been detected as candidates, showing how they orbit their stars. And there is so much science to be learned from studying examples beyond our own. And we hope that that same sort of having more than one example will enlighten our studies of life and indeed intelligent life as we go through this next century. So from the statistics of what we found so far, 
with six months of data released to the public, those 1,235 exoplanets candidates, 100 square degrees on the sky in an area that is at least 600 parsecs, 1,800 light years away. We can do the math and predict that within the Milky Way galaxy, there will be something like 50 billion planets and perhaps 500 million of those could be habitable, which makes it just exactly the perfectly right time to start answer, to answering this are we alone question with our current technologies. So astrobiology across disciplinary science um, that is flourishing is looking to understand the origins and evolution and distribution of life in the universe. So my astrobiology colleagues at the SETI Institute study the origins of life. They study extremophiles, types of microbial life that live in boiling battery acid or in frozen um, ice. Uh, they live in conditions that you and I would think are extreme but there are conditions to which they have been perfectly acclimatized over millions of years of evolution. And they use those as models to predict what we might find elsewhere, and in particular to predict how biology on the surface of a distant planet might alter the atmospheric chemistry of that planet the way life on this planet does. So first of all, we have oxygen in our atmosphere because of life. Blue-green algae, cyanobacteria, about 2.3 billion years ago, figured out how to do photosynthesis and make a living by combining carbon dioxide and water. And the byproduct of that was this noxious, toxic gas called oxygen, which killed off an awful lot of early methanogens. And that process was happening in the ocean. And after the free oxygen rusted all the rocks in the ocean, combined with all the iron that was there, that oxygen then percolated into the atmosphere. And so today we have an atmosphere that's 20% oxygen due to life. And that oxygen is replenished all the time by photosynthetic plants on the surface. If you could look at our, oxygen, our, our atmosphere from a distance, you'd also see that our atmosphere contains a greenhouse gas called methane. Methane's produced by um, methanogens in the guts of termites in rice paddies, methanogens produced by bovine flatulence, Methane is a gas which reacts very vigorously with free oxygen to produce byproducts of carbon dioxide and water vapor. And that's the equilibrium state. Yet our atmosphere is totally orders and orders and orders of magnitude out of equilibrium with this coexistence of methane and oxygen due to biology on its surface. No other planets in our solar system have an atmosphere that looks like that. And so we think about 
biology and how it might alter the chemistry of the atmospheres of some distant planets. And we try and figure out what would be the smoking gun? What would be the biosignature that would say, aha, there's life there. And it's not an easy, simple answer. And it's certainly going to vary over the lifetime of the planet. As, as in our own example, from something that was dominated by methanogens early on to the appearance of oxygen. So if we find biosignatures by remotely observing, imaging planets around nearby stars and doing a chemical assay of their atmospheres, um, we still won't know whether there are just microbes or whether there might be some mathematicians there. So that's what my group looks for. We look for technosignatures. We look for evidence in the electromagnetic spectrum, so I'm talking about signals, um, that are produced by engineers that are technological in their origin. Now, whether or not we succeed will depend primarily on the average lifetime of a technological civilization. Because for two technologies to be close enough to detect one another, they have to be close enough not only in space nearby, but in time. We've got a 10 billion year history in this galaxy. Our technology is 100 years old. If in fact, or applicable technology is 100 years old, if in fact 100 years is the typical lifetime of technologies out there, they arise perhaps frequently but do themselves in or turn themselves off, then it's unlikely that we will be synchronized throughout 10 billion years of deep time for technologies to be coexistent and discover one another. If, on the other hand, they are long-lived, then SETI could be successful. It's why Phil Morrison, a very wonderful physicist from the United States who was co-author on the first paper ever written in and published in the journal Nature, um, like to call SETI the archaeology of the future. Archaeology, because if we detect a signal, we're going to learn about their past. It took a finite time for that signal to reach us because of the light speed limit. But future, because if we detect a signal, it means that on average technologies last for a long time, so we have the potential of a long future. Now, we've been doing this for about 50 okay, years. Okay, imagine you're at the beach. In order to figure out if there are fish in the ocean, you dip an empty glass into the water and look inside. No fish in the glass? Well, there must be no fish in the ocean. Not too logical, is it? But that's where we are with SETI. Our 50 years of sampling has been so sparse that essentially we've dipped one glass out of the cosmic oceans and shouldn't yet be drawing any conclusions about whether or not we're alone. The nice thing is that the exponential improvements in technology are allowing us to build bigger glasses, glasses that we can dip into the ocean much faster and therefore hopefully sample 
a much larger volume of the ocean in the near future, in the next few decades. And so this is a picture of the Allen Telescope Array that we've built in partnership with the University of California at Berkeley. It's the way of building a large telescope by building a lot of small telescopes and connecting them with computers. So silicon is just as important for us as steel and aluminum. And we've been searching the skies with the Allen Telescope Array now for, for a few years. Um, we have algorithms that operate on those computers that run the telescopes that are extremely good at finding a specific kind of class of engineered signals. Right? In the radio, we look for signals that are narrow band, compressed in frequency. When we do optical SETI, we look for engineered signals that are compressed in time, very, very short pulses. Neither of those things are something that nature can produce. Um, this is an example of a signal from the most distant human artifact. This is the Voyager 1 spacecraft it is, as it now leaving our solar system and going into interstellar space. What I've plotted here is frequency on the horizontal axis, time on the vertical axis. And there is a clear signal there. And I've talked long enough so that I hope you found it. But if you haven't, here it is. And to our computers and our algorithms, it's incredibly easy to find such a signal. So when we know what we're looking for, we can do a really great job with computers. But what if we don't know what to look for? What if we're not looking for the right kind of signal? Well, that's what encouraged me in 2009 when I won this TED Prize, to make a wish to change the world. And my wish was that TED would empower Earthlings everywhere to become active active participants in the ultimate search for cosmic company. Right? Why did I wish that? Because I want to change perspectives, particularly of young people. I want them to get actively involved with SETI, to be able to encompass this cosmic perspective that working on the search just naturally engenders. Because these, in fact, are our future. They are what might lead to longevity. And so how can people become involved? Well, there are lots of ways that they have technical skills, and I'll talk about that. But even just using the fantastic capability of the human brain and our eyes and perhaps our ears for pattern recognition. Right? I think you might recognize that as being something other than just that noise. So what we'd like to do is provide a platform for citizen scientists, a platform for people to become actively involved with helping us search through parts of the data that are now blocked to our computers, to help us to find patterns in the data that we're not now looking for. But once we know what to look for, perhaps we can build algorithms that are better than the humans. So we're learning. We're trying to use what we're good at to train the machines of the future. So SETIQuest is a community that we're building, a global community, has many parts. It has an observing part that uses the Allen Telescope Array. It has a code development and writing algorithms and control software, which we've published as open source. And we hope that the world will take and use it for something and will also help make it better for us. 
There's a big part of SETI Quest that is supported in the cloud. Large amounts of data that we record not in our normal way of doing SETI observing, which is to, to take the data in, process it immediately, and throw it all away except for the information about signals, but instead taking and recording directly to disk vast amounts of data every Friday afternoon so the world can use it as a test bed. Work in the cloud with support that we have from Amazon Web Services to develop new algorithms and perhaps make the search better that way. Um, use the data for something else. If you need a good random noise generator, maybe that's the data set to use. Um, and then we have the Citizen Science Project, which we hope will eventually affect and have an impact on the real-time observing. So how does that work? Well, we start with the telescopes. We've had some recent wonderful donations of modern equipment standard enterprise servers rather than the custom equipment that we've had to build all these years ourselves. So now that we're on a commodity platform, the world can come join us. We put some of that data into the cloud. We send it out as uh, open source code to the development community. And now we're trying to engage the digital signal processing community and helping us to build algorithms, particularly students. And if you have any students that are really good at writing code and can write proposals really quickly. Um, the 8th, that is the end of this week, the Google Summer of Code um, competition closes. And we've got five projects that we're looking for good students for this summer. So let them know and get them motivated to write in a proposal quickly. Um, the other thing now is the citizen science project that we're working on. Uh, I was going to show you, except the technologies aren't compatible, uh, a nice application that we're just beginning to develop for these kinds of mobile devices, these tablets, um, with, uh, with some funding from Adobe and a group called the Hathersage Group. And next, we're going to start working with Galaxy Zoo to make this citizen science um, opportunity rich and engaging and give our, our uh, volunteers opportunities to do real research with us and help us solve problems that we don't now know how to solve. The absolute final payoff for the citizen scientist may be to send the information back that moves the telescope so that the next observation is following up on their signal. So there's an indication of the tablet uh, application. And for anybody who likes to beta test software, we've opened it up a couple of weeks ago for, for beta testing and are starting to look at the results of that now. So we're all ready to, we're all dressed up and ready to go, but there's a slight problem, okay? We know where we want to point our array for the next two years. We had a program and funding to spend the next two years exploring these wonderful Kepler worlds and involving Earthlings in the search and in the process, hopefully, changing their perspectives. We've built successful tools, and we're on the road to building better tools to getting the world involved. However, the funding situation in the US um, has put a bit of a crimp in those plans. So we need, unfortunately, a Phoenix 2 
arising from the ashes of the Tea Party, I guess. Um, anyway, we're, we're, we're struggling right now, but it's really, really important to find a way to keep this going um, because of this perspective. Uh, for thousands of years, we've seen what happens when you take a little small island and carve it up into even smaller islands. Tribalism is not the way to the future. Um, in the end, we really only belong, all of us, to one tribe. We're all earthlings, and we owe it to each other to recognize and focus on our commonalities rather than our differences. SETI is, is a mirror which actually can show ourselves to ourselves from this extraordinary perspective, one that trivializes the differences among humans that we find so difficult to get over today. And if we never detect a signal, I still think that the process of searching for a signal, of changing our perspective, can be one of the most profound activities that we do. So calibrating our place in the universe is within our grasp in this century. I think we should do it, and I hope that some of you will decide to join us. Thank you.